And so as the boys and girls head out now to Sunday school, uh, I'd ask the rest of us to turn in our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 9. I'm not going to try and wing it and preach Richard's sermon for him. We'll leave that for a while. And I'm going to preach from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we bring our many needs before you this morning. And we thank you that we bring them to a saviour who is so full of compassion for our spiritual needs and for our physical needs. Father, we pray for those in our church who are suffering from the virus or having to stay in isolation and for others who are suffering from different complaints and have been for some time we bring them before you we ask you to comfort them to uh, comfort them with the gospel of peace and with the knowledge that they are saved and in your hands but we do pray that you would provide for their physical needs we pray that you would heal them and bring them back to full strength. And may they be able to meet with us again soon when we are able to gather again. As we've already prayed, Lord, we pray for our government at this time. And we do ask that you would help them to see and to understand the great spiritual need for churches to gather together and worship you in the company of other believers. And so we pray that our government would be able to hold to this decision for a two-week closure. And again, we ask that you would give them wisdom in all of the difficult decisions that they have to make. We pray for those who have lost loved ones to this virus recently. And we pray that you would comfort them with the hope of the gospel. And as we turn to your word now, we ask that you would help us to understand it, not just at a head level, but to be impacted by it at a heart level. Would you change us through the preaching of your word? Would your spirit, the same spirit that inspired these scriptures, would he apply it to our hearts? Would he point us to Jesus? And would you fill our hearts with with just thanks and joy Uh, What an amazing gospel message we have to proclaim. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what you think the biggest danger the church 
is currently facing? Is it not being able to gather in person? Perhaps it's the potential for disagreements in churches over how things should be handled. Perhaps it's nothing to do with the pandemic. Perhaps it's the increasing secularization of our country within perhaps a generation, maybe two. Northern Ireland will probably look like any other European country. We think about how that's happened recently in terms of the loosening abortion laws. These things facing the church are certainly great dangers and ought not to be taken lightly. But what is the biggest danger facing the church, especially in these incoming months as we face closure and perhaps future closures? I would suggest that the biggest danger that the church is facing is that we would forget why we're here, that we would forget our mission. And as we face closure, that's what I want us to think about this morning. I want us to think seriously about whether we are becoming inward at a time when we need to be looking outward. There's a temptation that we would simply try to get our own house in order, and that's difficult, as we all know, whenever we should be inviting others into the household of faith. Now, I admit up front that one of the reasons I'm preaching on this this morning is that this is something that I struggle with. Now, every preacher should stand up with that attitude every week, but in particular, I look at this passage. I see the the compassion that the Lord Jesus has for those who are lost. He sees the great need, and I think, am I fueled by that? Am I driven by that? And at a time when we're trying to just make church happen in some shape or form, it can be tempting to put that to one side. So I want to say I'm speaking out of a place of me being challenged by this as well. It's a challenge to each of us. But as we look at these verses, we want to see the mission of the church. And I hope that we'll see that the mission of Jesus is the mission of the church. That's what we want to think about this morning. Two very simple points. First of all, we see Jesus's message or the message of the mission. We see that in verse 35. And we also see Jesus's motive or motives for mission. And we see that in verses 36 through to 38. So first of all, let's consider the message of Jesus. Read verse 35 again with me. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, this verse summarizes Jesus's ministry. It's a summary verse. It shows where he's gone throughout all the cities Uh, and all the villages he's been in the synagogues teaching but it also shows what he's been doing he's been teaching he's been proclaiming the gospel and he's been healing as well now if we had been reading through Matthew's gospel or listening to Matthew's gospel as the first Christians would have from the very start through to the end 
and that's what Matthew would want us to do, by the way. Sometimes we can narrow in on verses when actually we need to consider the whole. If we'd been reading from the start to the finish, we would stop here and we would think, hang on a minute, I've heard this before. Matthew's already said something like this. So turn back to Matthew chapter 4. And I would suggest that you keep your finger at Matthew chapter 4 or a little bookmark and read verse 23 with me. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's almost word for word as our text this morning. You know that I've been in college and I've had to knock out a few essays now and we've received several warnings as class. Don't pad out your essays. Don't just put stuff in in order to get the word count up. Don't repeat yourself. Get to the point. Don't say anything irrelevant. Now is Matthew here just padding out his gospel? Is he trying to compete with Luke for the longest gospel? No, I don't think so. Matthew is being very intentional about repeating this little phrase. You see, chapter 4, verse 23, chapter 9, verse 35, they're like two great bookends. And they explain and summarize everything that happens in between. What happens in between? Well, if, again, if we'd taken the time to read, we'd see the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, an example of Jesus' teaching. And we would read miracles, some fantastic, spectacular miracles, the calming of the storm, the raising of a girl from death to life, casting out demons, healing people, the very thing that our little summary verse says here. And when we read through those passages, the miracle stories, the Sermon on the Mount, we think that's where the action is. That's the exciting bit. A verse like verse 35, we'd almost be tempted to just skim past it. But the verse in chapter 4 and this verse in chapter 9, they're so important because they summarize and explain what all those miracles, all of Jesus' ministry is actually about and it all centers around that really important little phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' mission to the lost, it revolves around a message, something that needs to be proclaimed. And yes, the miracles are important. I don't want to just cast them to the side, but they demonstrate the power of the message. They're part of the message itself. The message of the gospel of the kingdom is key. And if we want to get mission right, we need to understand what Jesus' message was. What is this gospel of the kingdom? Well, that's what we want to spend a considerable amount of time this morning doing. So let's break this little phrase down and figure out what it means. What is the gospel of the kingdom? Well, it breaks down really into two words, doesn't it? Firstly, gospel, and secondly, kingdom. So let's consider those. First of all, what is gospel? I wonder what pops into your mind when you 
hear that word. For some people, they think of a, a gospel choir, gospel singers. Um, Polly watches one of her favorite Disney films. There's a little song in it. It goes, and that's the gospel truth. You've maybe heard that phrase before as well. As Christians, we can become over-familiar with this word. What is the gospel? Well, that's the message by which I got saved, and we would articulate it in slightly different ways, but hopefully mostly the same. But something that we often forget, perhaps because we're over-familiar with this, is that the gospel is news. It's good news. We know that, don't we? It's a real Sunday school category there. But don't miss that. It's news. It's an announcement. It's something that has happened that's being declared. The gospel is not a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not a way of life. It's a declaration. It's something that God has done, something that he's doing, and it's something that's very, very good as well. And I take time to say that because many, even evangelical churches, are falling into the trap of associating good works, good commendable things, things that we're involved with, like helping the food bank. They're associating those things with sharing the gospel. As we'll see, Jesus had compassion for people, for their physical needs. It's not that good works are wrong. And perhaps the church needs to be more involved and more invested in good works. But good works are not the good news. The good news is something that God has done. And we would do well to remember that. But secondly, and perhaps a more tricky phrase, kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. What is it? Well, again, back to chapter 4. The verse that sort of kickstarts Jesus' ministry is this. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. Or as the other gospel writers put it, the kingdom of God. And we know that it's the big subject, the big focus of Jesus's ministry. Virtually all of the parables attempt to explain in some way what the kingdom of heaven is. Libraries, literally libraries could be filled with books that have been written about the kingdom. And people disagree about it, but let's try and make it easy for ourselves. So three S's, three S's to help you remember what the kingdom of heaven is about. Firstly, it's about sovereignty. It's about sovereignty. A sovereign is a king, someone who's in charge. And God is in charge. What is God in charge of? He's in charge of everything. He's in charge of the world. And so there's the sense in which everything is part of God's kingdom because he is ruling and reigning everywhere. But here's the problem. Not everyone recognizes that rule or reign. And God, in his patience and kindness, has not enforced his judgment to destroy rebels. Thank God for that. For outside of Christ, we were rebels. So yes, God is sovereign, and in that sense, his kingdom is everywhere, but it's not recognized. And so the second S, a special people. 
God rules and reigns in a special way amongst his own special people. In the Old Testament, we see this with Israel. They were given kings to rule over them. Uh, They were given lands, uh, a place that they could see as these are the boundaries of God's kingdom. But then even God's chosen people rejected his rule and reign. And they turned to the idols of the nations around them. And so the prophets promised, third S, a savior. A savior would come. The prophets foretold this coming Messiah. We've been singing about him this morning. And he would rule in righteousness and justice. He would extend God's kingdom to the ends of the earth so that there would be no more rebels. Peace. From pole to pole, let warfare cease, as the hymn puts it. And throughout Matthew's gospel, it's really clear that Jesus fits the job description here. Everything that he do points to what the prophets have been saying. And as the people see him uh, healing blind people, casting out demons, having power, not over the Romans, no, over death, they say, that's him. That's the promised Messiah. And so the good news is this. Jesus has come to reverse the curse of sin. He has come to drive out every enemy of God, including death, suffering, and sorrow. God's rule and reign means putting an end to those great enemies. But there's a problem, and we can illustrate it this way. You've maybe heard of the author, G.K. Chesterton, uh, dead now, a famous Christian author. And the, the paper, The Times, once sent out an inquiry to famous authors asking the question, what's wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton responded simply, Dear Sir, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He saw that we have a tendency to look out there and see the problems of the world. And he knew The problems that are out there are all symptoms of the problem that is in my own heart. Sin. I'm part of the problem. Yes, the effects of sin are a problem. And no, we shouldn't draw a straight line, as Richard always says, between what someone is suffering and their own sin. It doesn't work like that. Good, righteous people suffer terrible things. Terrible, wicked people get away And maybe live to 90 with no problems and great wealth. But we cannot so easily separate ourselves from the problem of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why Jesus preached back in chapter 4, verse 17, repent. Which means turn, turn away from your sins. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's coming. And Jesus sees to the heart of the problem in Matthew chapter 9, that famous story that we all know so well, where the four four men bring their paralyzed friend and they lower him through the roof to Jesus. They want him to heal him. And surely the fact that he's paralyzed is a terrible problem. The man can't work. He has to beg or rely on other people. His physical problem has great consequences in his life. But what does Jesus say to him? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. 
Jesus sees his greatest need. And then he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and he heals him. That's the big problem. Authority. Jesus, the King of Kings, who ushers in God's kingdom, yes, he has authority over death, over sickness, over demons, but he has authority over sin. He has the authority to forgive sin and that's why we must respond to his message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand it's really good news that god's kingdom sounds the death knell for death the great enemy and all his minions diseases viruses sadness loneliness racial strife broken marriages Disappointment, dashed dreams, war, poverty, child trafficking, pedophilia, bullying, manipulating, abuse. Thank God that those things will be done away with. That in his kingdom there is no place for those things. But it's good news firstly and foremostly because sinners like us are offered a way into this wonderful kingdom. And we come through the saving grace of the king of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would lay down his life at the cross, the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is that we who are spiritually dead can be brought to life again. That's an even more amazing miracle than the miracle in Matthew 9 of the little girl who was raised from physical death to life again. And so what's our mission? Our mission is to behold this amazing message, to become enraptured with it and to tell others. It's not about us. It's not about us going out and transforming the community. Yes, we want to help people physically. Of course we do. But it's about us giving them the only message that can truly transform them. Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 10, you'd maybe know this if you scan ahead, he sends out his disciples. And there's an amazing similarity between what Jesus does and what they do. In chapter 1, he gives them authority over unclean spirits to heal every disease and every affliction. In verse 7, he says, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The exact same message. And then heal the sick, praise the dead, cleanse lepers. And so he extends his mission and his message to his disciples. And it's extended to us as well. The great climax of Matthew's gospel after the cross is the great commission. He commissions his apostles to go and to spread this good news all across the world. And we are called as well. If the mission of the church is the mission of Jesus, then we need to get the message right. We need to get the message right. Now let me make this really, really practical before I move on to Jesus's motives. How can we do that? Well, I would say, first of all, don't, don't assume the gospel. Sometimes we think we know the gospel. This year, why don't you make it your goal to read a really good 
simple, clear book about the gospel. Sometimes we think we're above that. I know that. Move beyond that. But read a book that puts in clear, modern language, the kind of language that you would use to an unbeliever who knows nothing about the gospel, nothing about the Bible. Read a book like that so that you have in your head words, phrases, a model for sharing what the gospel is. One recommendation would be great little book, What is the Gospel? by Greg Gilbert. Very clear, very simple, doesn't assume that you know anything about sin or God or salvation. That's the sort of book that will shape you and you could give away to someone else. Think about tracts as well. You know, sometimes I read tracts and I agree with them 100%, but I think there's no way an unbeliever would understand half of that. We assume that they know what these great Bible words mean, but they don't. So be very careful. Just because you understand the tract and it makes sense to you doesn't mean it's going to make sense to an unbeliever. One of the best gospel tracts I've ever come across, and you've probably heard of it, is Two Ways to Live. Now, that's an old version of it. You can get a much more modern-looking one. But that doesn't assume anything. And it goes right from creation through to Jesus and through to heaven at the end. So that's a great one. And you can get those online PDF versions of them. So think about that. It's, messaging is all about not what you say, but how it's received and how it's understood. So why don't you make that a goal? Put that on your Christmas list. What is the gospel by Greg Gilbert? Something like that. The message is so important. And I don't apologize for spending the vast majority of this sermon this morning focusing on the message when talking about mission. Now, that was Jesus' message, but what were his motives? What were his motives? It's really important to think about what motivates us. Uh, Perhaps some of you remember Glenn Scrivener speaking in the Donald Presbyterian Church. uh, And he talked about the wrong motivations that we can have for evangelism or for mission. He says we can be guilted into it. Uh, And we think if we just do this one big event, like Dundonald Bible Ministries, then that's evangelism checked off for the year. I don't have to worry about it again. We shouldn't be driven by guilt. There are lots of bad reasons to become involved in evangelism and mission. But look at what Jesus is motivated by. Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion is a really strong word in the original language. It talks about a a sensation that comes from the bowels from the guts and rises up. Jesus, Jesus was no wimp. He was no softy. He, he took the Pharisees to task. He spoke boldly. He spent time with some of the roughest people that we would perhaps be afraid to darken their doors. But Jesus was moved by compassion for people. Now, I can't say to you, you need to be more compassionate. For people. I can't say to myself, I need to be more compassionate. You can't 
You can't drum up an emotion in yourself. It's pointless. But you can do what Jesus did here. What did he do in verse 36? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. If we look at the need and look carefully enough and look hard enough and long enough, if we expose ourselves to those things which might make us uncomfortable, we will find ourselves becoming more compassionate. Now, we're sinners. Our hearts are hard. Surely we need to pray to God's to have our hearts softened, yes. But look at the needs. Look at the needs around you and see that compassion rising. What is it that Jesus saw? Well, he saw suffering. They were harassed and helpless, which is surely talking about uh, the diseases and afflictions that he has been having to heal. But it's not just that. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were suffering and they were shepherdless. It wasn't just physical needs that they had. They were spiritually leaderless. They had no one to guide them through their suffering in a way that brought the comfort of God. Unlike the Pharisees, Jesus reaches out to sinners. We see that again in chapter 9. In Matthew's own conversion, he's a tax collector he has a lot of tax collector friends. And when Jesus calls him, Matthew invites some of his friends around to his house for dinner with Jesus. And Jesus gladly spends time with them. The Pharisees don't like it at all. What do they say in verse 11? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the so-called righteous, but sinners. Jesus, unlike the Pharisees, is willing to get in the midst of sinners, not to become involved in their sin, but to love them, to spend time with them, to open his eyes to what they were going through. He was the leader that the Old Testament promised. I could give you five, six, seven different passages if we had time about the shepherds, the bad shepherds in the Old Testament. But here's one in Jeremiah chapter 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who do not care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. That's what the Pharisees were doing. But then this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. He's the king, the shepherd that they needed. And he was driven by compassion for the lost, not by hypocrisy, not by judgmentalism, not by a desire for power and the, the approval of other people. He loved people. We need the compassion of the good shepherd. And to do that, we need to look out to the world around us. One of the great Western idols is the idol of comfort. And especially 
for those of us who are Christians, who are maybe middle class. We have no idea what's going on around us and the terrible conditions spiritually in which people are living. I saw this as a teacher. I was shocked that in the very town that I had been living in for seven years, the situations that some boys and girls were living in, and not that it excused their behavior, but it certainly explained it. We live in a world that is broken. And yes, sinners are responsible for their actions, but we are to pity them and have compassion on them, for we too are sinners. So don't seal yourself off from the suffering that goes on around you. Lift up your eyes and look at the crowds and pray for the compassion of Jesus. The final thing that motivates Jesus then is in the, the final couple of verses. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We all know about succession plans, people who are high up in businesses, perhaps politicians, and even pastors as well. They don't just leave the job and leave the people without a leader. They take someone on board, they train them up. And this is what Jesus has been doing. Right back in chapter 4, he takes Peter and he says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And now, chapter 10, he's about to send out his disciples on their first mission without Jesus. And by the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus leaves them. And he sends them out into the world. He's discipling them into his mission. And the first thing he does here, driven by his compassion, is he says to his disciples, look. Look at this great need and look at the problem. The harvest is plentiful. There are thousands of people who need leadership, spiritual leadership, who need the gospel preached to them. And they're without workers. They're without leader, leaders. It's as much an opportunity as it is a problem. And what's the solution then that Jesus gives? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now we're running out of time, but let me just note a couple of things there. First of all, it's God's mission. You're praying to the Lord of the harvest. He's in charge. He knows the laborers that he will send. He knows the needs. We're helpless. We must never make mission again. We should never make mission about us and what we can do. We must pray to the Lord of the harvest. Some, again, practical suggestions for how you can do that. Don't just think missionaries. Think gospel ministers. I wonder, do you use this that comes twice a year in the uh, magazine, the Irish Baptist magazine? Pray. And each day... There's three or four pastors as part of our own association that you can name and pray for. And pray, I counted it up last night, 28 vacancies in our association. Pray for those vacancies to be filled. 
But looking further than our own country, uh, maybe you remember uh, not so long ago, Mervyn Scott came, director of Baptist Missions. Uh, and one thing that he gave uh, or made available, and I found them so helpful, are these little prayer prompt cards, which you can request online. It gives you a picture of the people you're praying for, their names, and three very simple things to pray for. And I find that so helpful. I find that in prayer, I need prompts. I need something to remind me of what to pray for. So why don't you try and make an effort this year in coming to use things like that to pray specifically for those who are already out on the field and for more to come. So pray and pray earnestly. But finally, be prepared to get caught up in the very prayer that you're praying. Jesus prayed or told the disciples to pray for workers to be sent out. And what happens in the next chapter? The disciples are the workers and they are being sent out. And what do they do? By the time we get to book, the book of Acts, they're planting churches left, right, and center. They are the answer to the prayer they prayed. Not all of us will go most of us will stay. But as John Piper reminds us, when it comes to mission, either we're zealous senders or we're zealous goers. Either you go or you earnestly and zealously support your missionaries from home in prayer, in finance, and in encouragement. So as we consider the power of this message, and as we consider Jesus' motive for mission, May the mission of Jesus be the mission of the church. The greatest danger facing us in these coming months and beyond is that we forget what we're about. It's that we forget why we're not in heaven now. We've got a mission. By God's grace, we've been included in that mission. So make it, make it your prayer that this year you will be more concerned about what's going on in the world around you than the difficulties that we are facing ourselves. God will provide for us, but we have a mission and we should strive to be part of that mission and to be faithful in that mission. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we have not been faithful in many ways, to the mission that you have given us. As individuals, we have lacked the zeal and the, the passion for opportunities to share the gospel. Our prayer life for missionaries around the world and closer to home has perhaps been lacking. And sometimes we have got caught up in what's happening around us instead of in our own life instead of what's happening in the world around us and the great need. So Lord, lift our eyes to see the need. Fill us with compassion for the lost. Give us a clear sense of the glorious gospel message that we have and drive us to do whatever you would have us to do in your mission. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.